you guys would grab a Bible, turn. We are in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. If you want to grab that, look up at me when you get there. It's on the screen too, so you can follow along as well. I'm going to go ahead and start. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glor- we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Wait for it with patience. So I'm going to ask you a question. How is it that you relate to God? How do you see God primarily? There's lots of ways that we can relate to God. Shepherd, creator, judge. How is it that you primarily in your relationship operate with God? C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. The Son of Man became a man. The Son of God became a man in order to enable us to become sons of God. Today, um, we're going to be talking about what it means for us to be a son of God. And so if you're new or perhaps uh, not a Christian here, I want to welcome you. I want to say we're glad that you're here. We hope you feel welcomed and loved. Um, and we have been journeying through Romans for the past several months. And so what we've seen, and we looked at Romans uh, chapter 6, we're talking about sanctification, how we are changed as Christians. And so we talked about in chapter 6 our mindset, about how God comes in and he helps us understand that we are unified with Christ, that in Christ's death we died, in Christ's resurrection we have new life. And so he talks about our mindset. In chapter 7, he talks about our struggle with the law. How is it that the law operates in the life of a Christian? Often people use the law as a standard by which they think that they're good or bad, right? By often they say, well, either I'm pleasing to God or I'm not pleasing to God by the law. And we've seen that the law actually is a guideline, not of simply being accepted by God, but instead to please God because we've been accepted by Christ. And so the law guides us. It shows us what it means for us to to love God, right? Not in order that he would accept us, but because he has accepted us. God has accepted us, and because he loves us, because we are free, we want to please him. And the the law is a guideline. It's like a journey. It's a path. It shows us 
what to walk and how to walk in order to, to love God. You know, put him first, keeping the Sabbath, loving your neighbor, all of these things. Jesus says that the law summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God and loving your neighbor. And so, and towards the end of chapter 7, what we saw is that all of us struggle with inward sin. All of us, even mature godly people, deeply struggle with inward dwelling sin. There are things that we hate. There's things that we wish we could take away. And so in the middle of this struggle, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, in the midst of these deep, dark things that you keep in a closet that you don't want anybody else to know that you struggle with, in the middle of those, he talks about understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. And so two weeks ago, we talked about that the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit brings freedom, and the Holy Spirit brings life. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one that enables us to understand that we are no longer condemned. Right? Chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he allows us to understand that we are now free. We are free from the guilt for the condemnation that oftentimes we feel because we are in Christ. And so he says, you're free, but then also the Holy Spirit shows us that we have life. The Holy Spirit is the one that causes us to be born again. He gives us new life. He's as if it were in the operating room, you know, like giving, helping us to be born. And then he is alongside us as we grow up in that life. He is the one saying, set your minds on these things. Think about this. Go this way. Don't go that way. And so he guides us as a friend, as a journey, as a helper, as we grow up in the life that he has given. And so now we come to, understanding that, we come to chapter 8, verse 14. And we look at the Holy Spirit's role in adoption, right? As sons, as primarily we understand our sons. And so if you're not a Christian, I want you to think about two different things. Right? I want you to hold these things in your mind as we go, as we journey throughout this. One is, what I asked before, how do you relate to God? How do you see God primarily? Do you see him as a father or do you see him simply as a judge, as someone to fear? And the second one is, what's your hope for the future? What do you hope for for the future for yourself? And what do you hope for the, for the future of this world? If you're, if you're not a Christian, what do you hope for for your future? For changing, for, for adapting, and what do you hope for for the future of this world? Is there any change? Is there any healing that happens? Is there any restoration? I hope that you hold those two things in your mind as we, as we journey through. Because these are, these are important questions, right? How we answer those questions, how you relate to God, and how your hope for the future impact right here and right now. They make a, a drastic impact right here and right now. So the big idea for our time together, if there's one thing that I really want you to hold on to, I want you to stick in your head and, and, and allow sink down in your heart, it's this. It's that the Holy Spirit makes Christians sons of God. The Holy Spirit makes Christians sons of God guaranteed, guaranteed with a glorious future. Right? So the Holy Spirit makes us sons of God guaranteed with a glorious future. And so two things we're going to talk about are adoption as sons and our future as sons. Our adoption as sons and our future as sons. So first, let's look at our adoption as sons. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he, uh, he says this, he says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as a father. You see, the most profound and the highest blessing and privilege of a Christian is that they would actually get to consider God as their father. And our, our culture hears this, and often you hear this in, uh, in different people talking, well, oh, you know, we're all sons of God, or we're all daughters of God, but you see, the New Testament and the Bible itself teaches that that's not the case. That God refers to people that are sons and, and children of God, specifically for those that are believers. 
In the Old Testament, it was Israel. God said that his firstborn was was Israel. In the New Testament, those that are considered sons or children of God are specifically those that have faith in Christ. In Acts 17, you see that all humanity in general is referred to as offspring, but yet the, the very specific, the familial designation as a son is only for those that are linked to Christ through faith. And this is what he says. He says it in John 1.12. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so John here, he, he makes it perfectly clear that the privilege of being called a son of God is reserved for those that receive Christ. And also that God is the only one that can give someone the right to even become a child of God. God is the one that bestows the right to become children of him. And so we ought to be thankful to him for that privilege. So what does it mean? What does adoption mean? You know, as we come to this subject of adoption, we need to understand, is Paul referring to adoption as we understand it? Because oftentimes when we think of adoption, we think of a family that goes and gets a tiny infant and then they raise up that infant child into be part of their family. But you see that that's not the same way that Paul understood or that that Roman adoption worked. Actually, it was much different. And so I want to read a a quote from Keller that kind of helps us understand what Roman adoption was so that we might better understand how he's referring to our adoption as sons and daughters of the king. Keller writes, Adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. He would then adopt someone as heir. It could be a child, a youth, or an adult. The moment adoption occurred, several things were immediately true of the new son. First, his old debts and legal obligations were paid. Second, he got a new name and was instantly heir of all the father had. Third, his new father became instantly liable for all his actions, his debts, his crimes, etc. But fourth, the new son also had new obligations to honor and please his father. So it's really interesting, right? He says the first thing as an adopted son, everything that you owed God before, every guilt, every sin, everything that you've ever done wrong is now taken off. There's no condemnation for you. Instead, all that old debt is now put on the father and he takes it all upon himself, right? So you're free, you're released. There is no debt that you owe, right? Second, he says that you have now a new name. And this is one of the beautiful things about when we talked about don't taking the Lord's name in vain, right? A while back we talked about, um, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And what the thing we realized when we studied that is that it's actually our name. When you become a Christian, you actually get God's name. He gives you his name. And so now why we don't take the Lord's name in vain is because, one, we love the Lord and because it's our family name. Can you imagine somebody swearing up and down your mom or your dad or your family name? It would horrify you and you would instantly get defensive about it. But yet that's the case. What happens when we take the Lord's name in vain is that it's our family name. He bestows it upon us. We have a new name as Christians, little Christ. Right? The, the third thing is that um, he, uh, we're an heir, right? So we have an inheritance that awaits us. And so we have this glorious future inheritance that is stored up for us. Um, and then the, the, the fourth thing is that now we have a new obligation, right? To love our father, not simply out of duty, but out of thankfulness because of what he's done. And so it's important to understand these revolve around our understanding of adoption, 
Now, I titled the sermon Sons of God. And I think it's really important for me to talk about why um, I titled that because maybe some of the females are saying, hey, what about us daughters? You know, like we just had a, a con- you know, why, don't, why aren't we included in this? You know, why didn't you put sons and daughters of God? Um, and the reason that I put that and I put sons of God is because Paul is referring to something that was primarily a male exclusive role. Adoption in the Roman industry was usually only males, is that they would adopt a male because a wealthy individual of an estate would find a male and he would adopt him in and he would have upward mobility and have freedom because he would be the inheritor of all that the father had. But don't you see that Paul's actually circumventing the culture's day because now he says and he has the audacity to claim that something that was only was exclusively male, he says now is open to all in Christ. And so he says, listen, it's not just that Males now can be sons of God, but now females also have this privilege of coming to God and of upward mobility, of being inheritors of all that he has promised. And so it's, it's exclusively. So it's not that he's saying, oh, you're not, you're not daughters of God, but it's, it's that title. And women shouldn't be offended just as men shouldn't be offended of being called the bride of Christ, right? And so God is, God is even handed in his use of metaphors, Right, And we need to, instead of being offended by how God speaks, instead to learn from them because of the richness of what each metaphor shows us. Each metaphor and each analogy shows us a different range of what it's like to be in this life with Jesus. And so it's important to understand that we are, we are sons. So Paul now turns um, probably to one of the most important topics, I think, of the Christian life, and it's one of assurance. How is it that we know that we're actually children of God? How do you actually know that you're a Christian? I, mean, I think that's a pretty big problem that at some point in time all of us struggle with. We fall into sin, we you know, mess up, and then we start wondering, am I really a Christian? How could a Christian do things like I do? Um, and as I was thinking about this, a, a story my dad would, uh, when I was growing up, he would share stories of his childhood. And so I remember my dad's actually the younger brother. He has an older brother that's a couple years older than him. And he would tell me that when he was little, his older brother would like taunt him and be like, eh, you're adopted. You, you're not part of the family. And so he'd just like give him a really hard time and be like, you know, and for a little kid, they're like, that hurts, you know, like, and so he would like, he would really get underneath my dad's skin by like telling him like, you're not part of the family. You're not grandma and grandpa's son. And then as my dad got older, my dad got older and he started realizing he's like, you know, you got red hair and you got white skin. Like, I got all skin and brown hair. I look more like mom and dad. And so he starts poking back at him, and he's like, actually, who's really adopted? You know, who's really not part of the family? And so, and so, you know, they kind of get back. They're both part of the family. But, like, I raise that because if you don't know the reason why you are a child, you're going to constantly be doubting it, right? You're going to be constantly looking at these things or these things. You're going to be constantly listening to everybody else, and you're going to be listening to your own conscience, saying, well, are you really sure? Do you really know? And so it's really important that we have the right foundation because if we don't have the right foundation in our Christian assurance, we're going to always be questioning if we're really true children. And it's this that Paul turns to, right? He, uh, he says that the guarantee, right, the, the way that we know that we're actually children of God is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that authenticates our childhood, our adoption, right? And, uh, and we look, he says that if we are led by the Spirit, right? All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? In verse 13, he talks about it in the previous, in the previous sermon we talked about it. But he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so what he means, he says, when you're led by the Spirit, it means that you're led to hate sin and to love God. 
And so if you have experiences where you're actually hating sin, where you're wrestling sin, and you're finding yourself loving God, that's an indicator that I'm actually a child of God, right? Even the struggle, even the struggle with those things demonstrates the Holy Spirit lives in us, right? In, uh, in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it talks about how the Holy Spirit seals us. It says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So do you see, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are sealed in God. You are guaranteed in him. The, the other way that he says that we know that we're children, he says that the Spirit actually cries out. Right? He says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God? That word bears witness, it means to testify, right? It's, it's martyria, and it's actually the same word for martyr. It means to give a, a crucial testimony in a very important case. And so what happens is that when we're wrestling around, debating if we're really children, what happens is the Holy Spirit wells up and he gives a definitive word. He's an authoritative one that cries out, yes. You are. And what he says is that he says he causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. Right? And that word, Abba, it means Papa, Daddy. It is a word of the utmost intimacy, the utmost security. Right? Closeness. It was of a little child, a little child that had great confidence and assurance in their father. They would cry out, Papa, come. Right? And so this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit wells up in Christians and he causes us to understand that God is our Heavenly Father. And you see, oftentimes, a whole litany of us have problems with the idea of God as a Father. Right? Because of our fathers. Some of us have fathers that were phenomenal. Right? And so we see God as our Father and we think, oh, this is awesome. Even if they have faults and failures and we're able to say he's more like that. But others of us, we come to this idea of God as a Father and we bring a lot of baggage. We bring a lot of hurt. Because we think of God the same way that we think of our earthly Father, that he didn't do this or he didn't do that or he messed up here. But do you see that God as Father is the primary way that Jesus relates to God as Father? And that in this, there's so much healing that can happen if you allow God to reform and transform your idea of him as your father. You see, even those that have had and grown up in marriages that are hard, when they go into a new marriage, they decide that I'm going to learn from that negative example. I'm going to take the negative and I'm going to see what should actually be positive in it. And so do you see that if you've been wounded by your father, you've been hurt, they can actually show you how Christ ought to be because you can learn from the negative example. You can learn if your father did that and it was negative, you can guarantee that God the Father isn't like that, that he doesn't do that. He doesn't treat you that way. Instead, he is loving, he is patient, he is faithful, he is good all the time. And so allow, allow the times where there's been negative, when there's been harm, to instead show you the contrast of what your heavenly father is like because he isn't a bad father. Instead, he is a good, good father to all those that come to him. The, the illustration here that when Paul says that the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, it's actually an experience, right? And so what happens in the lives of Christians is that it doesn't necessarily happen often or even frequently, but there are moments. There are moments in the Christian's life 
where they they know that God is speaking to them and he says, I love you. There's moments, whether it's at camp, whether it's at a conference, whether you've been still and you know that God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to your heart and he's reaffirming his love for you, his care for you. It's as if the father is walking by this child and they're walking together and there's father-child, but there's times in which the father grabs the child's hand and he lets him know that he's there. And then there are these moments. There are these moments where the father comes and he scoops up the child in his hands, in his arms, and he whispers to him and he says, do you know how much I love you? Do you know that I would give anything for you? That I would die for you? And there are moments where the spirit whispers this, where he, he lets our hearts know that he is there, that God our father loves us in this way, that he is willing to wrap his arms around us. And those moments seem so too far and infrequent. Right? But they're there in the lives of Christians and they shout out that God is our father, that we are his sons and his daughters, that he loves us. I know for me, when I was reading this, it made me remember of a, a moment in my own life. Um, I had just moved. It was my sixth grade year. I just moved to a new place and uh, trying to fit in. Parents were going through a divorce, trying to fit in, didn't really know where I fit in, and I was getting, I was riding the bus, public school buses are terrible, um, but I was riding the bus, and I like was just getting picked on constantly by these upperclassmen. You know, I'm a little sixth grader, I'm getting picked on by like a 10th and 11th grader, you know, and I'm, I'm a band, like I played band at this time, so I'm carrying my saxophone in my case, walking up, you know, going home, and, uh, and this, I mean, this kid had just been messing with me for weeks, you know, just, I mean, just tormenting me, just like wouldn't give me a hard time. And I told my dad about it, you know, I was like, man, he just give me a hard time. And, uh, and I remember a moment like where it was awesome. He caught him straight in the act. And so like this guy's just pelting me with snowballs, just like, just yelling at me, making me feel like I was nothing. And all of a sudden my dad swerves around in his car, pulls in the driveway, walks out and he's got his trench coat on. <laughs> like walks out, long trench coat on and just yells out like, that's my son. Stop. You know, and this dude freaked out. You know what I mean? Like 10th grade ran home and I was like, yes, that's my dad. <laughs> you know, one of those moments. And, and, what I hope you what I hope you you get from that story is that there are moments and times where God wants to speak and where He will defend us and He wants to yell into your heart right now that He is your Father and that He loves you and that He will defend your cause. Stand underneath Him, trust in Him. He will be there for you. So we know that we are children because the Holy Spirit lives in us and He moves in us and He guarantees these things. I want to move on and talk about that we, so we know that we are children of God. We are, the Holy Spirit comes in and causes us to call Abba. But then now he switches in verse 18 and he talks about our future as children. He talks about the future of us as, as children. In verse 18, guys, this is a huge, huge, drastic verse because he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is, this is a very audacious claim. Paul is here saying, listen, the worst in this world, the worst that you've ever experienced, it's not even worth comparing to what's coming. What he's saying is, Paul is saying that there is a, a good that is so great that it will change everything, even in your present. There's a good that's so great that it will change everything in your present. You know, I think one of the... One of the greatest sadnesses of our culture is that we have no tools to deal with suffering. Our culture is almost devoid of tools to actually deal with suffering. Right? The Greeks had this myth about King Sisyphus. Now, King Sisyphus was, got in trouble with the gods, and he was now sentenced to continually push a stone up a hill, and then only to watch it roll down again. 
And he would do this day after day after day, right? Pushing a stone up, watching it roll down. And the idea behind it is that suffering, suffering is unbearable. Suffering is unbearable unless you see that there's purpose behind it. Suffering is unbearable unless you see that there's purpose behind it, right? And what our culture says is that the purpose of your life is to be happy. The purpose of your life is to be comfortable. The purpose of your life is to do what you want. And do you see that when suffering comes into your life, it will destroy it? Because if that's your purpose and suffering is keeping you from it. Do you see that unless there's a deep enough hope to buoy your soul, suffering will eat you up and spit you out. It will destroy you. Because here's the thing. When cancer ravishes your body and you realize that everything that you'd hope for isn't going to happen, empty euphemisms don't work. They don't help. When you have a loved one that dies, right, having somebody come along and say it's, it's going to be okay when you really know it's not, nothing's going to be the same, doesn't help. Only if you have a hope that is able to buoy your soul, is able to help you to see that there's something more coming Will you be able to get through these things? And see, this is one of the the most beautiful things about Christianity. Is that Paul here says, he says, there is such a good that it will actually work backwards. There is such a glory that is going to be revealed that it will work backwards and it will change your present outlook. It will change how you deal with things right here and right now. But what is it, right? What is the the glory to be revealed? Because he says this, he says, it's not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And what Paul imagines here is it's, it's as if we're going on a journey to a home that we've never been to, but we've heard about. We've heard about this home. We've heard about the beauty. We've heard about the splendor, but yet we've never fully seen it. And he says that there's going to be a time where we will see this long-awaited, beautiful home that we've longed for. Jimbo in class, thought I thought he gave a really good illustration. He said that this world is like the negative and we're awaiting a negative photo, and we're waiting to see the full picture. That when we look at creation, all we see is the black and white. But there comes a day, right? The ultimate hope for us as Christians isn't dying and going to be in heaven. That's great. Don't get me wrong. I can't wait for that. But the ultimate hope, and what this passage talks about, is the ultimate hope for us as Christians is the resurrection of everything that is. You see, this world is like Jesus was on the cross. This world is marred by sin. It doesn't take too long to look at the news, to look at world events, to tell this world is ravaged by sin. It's ravaged by pain and by evil, just as Jesus was on the cross. But just as Jesus was resurrected with a new body, three days later, God raised Jesus with a glorious new body. That's his promise to what he will do to this whole world. You see, there's a day coming where God will resurrect everything. There will be no more death, no more decay. There will be no more suffering, no more cancer, no AIDS, no more war. All of it will be gone, and there will instead be beauty and glory and splendor and awe. And it is this that we wait for. You see, one of the the most splendid things about this is it says the glory to be revealed to us, and often we think about the glory that I'm going to see. I'm going to see all these glorious things, but actually what it means is it means the glory to be revealed in us. And so you see, it's, it's as if we get to this homeland and we are marveling at the beauty of it. We're standing in awe, and we almost feel unworthy because of how beautiful it is and how in comparison to us. And then we get a glimpse in the mirror. We walk by, and we actually see ourselves for the first time in this new place, and we realize that we're actually the most glorious thing in it. You see, he says that he's going to resurrect us along with this world, that we will have brand new bodies, 
right? He talks about that this is the seal of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, that we will stand and we will talk and we will eat and we will celebrate together in heaven on earth. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this new body. He says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the hope that we long for. That one day, we won't have any limitations. There will be no more wheelchairs. There will be no more glasses. There will be no, no more medication. All of these things will be gone. And we will stand before the Lord. What a day. How do we have confidence that this is going to happen, though? Right? This seems almost like a fairy tale. So how do we have confidence that this is is really going to happen. And this is kind of what Paul turns to next. He gives us two analogies that help us to understand that this actually is going to happen. This isn't just some myth or some fairy tale, but actually this is the reality of how things are. And the two analogies is he gives the analogy of an expecting mother, and he also gives the analogy of first fruits. And so we've already talked about all of us know that the world isn't as it ought to be, right? The world is broken. And here it says that it's subjected, right? It's in bondage. It's futility. And that word futility means vanity. It means that creation is not totally fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. Right? That the purpose for which creation was made is to fully glorify God. And right now, it's not fully able to do that. It's being held back from fully glorifying God. And the reason it was is because in Genesis, it says that God cursed the ground. God is the one that subjected it to futility because of us. Our sin, as it were, broke the cosmic chain. It, we were the cog in the whole system. Because of our sin, creation isn't, isn't able to fulfill its part, its role. But it says that there's an eager longing, right? When Jesus came, when he died on the cross, when he rose again, it ushered in a new era, right? And he says, now all the pain, and all the suffering, it's like a pregnant woman. Well, I assume that pregnancy sickness isn't anything to joke about, right? That's actually pretty serious. I mean, I know that we have people that probably can attest to that. And so he's not dismissing that there's any pain or there's any hardship, but he says, listen, if you were to ask a mother that holds her child, if the pain of the pregnancy was worth the new life that they see, there'd be no comparison. The pain now is actually looked backwards and they see the fruit of what it, what, of what it, was le- what it led to. And so he says, so too, we can now look and we can see all the pain in our life, all the pain, all the suffering in this world, and we can see it as labor pains, that it's bringing forth new life. And we can experience that personally, that the pains that we go through, that it's bringing forth new life in us, the life that Christ has given. And we can see in this creation that though there's pain, though there's suffering, that there is going to be new life that is brought forth. And so we approach it with excitedness. We, we approach it with longing, right? Just as a, a, a mother... And, you know, a pregnant mother goes through these pains excited and hoping, one, that they'll be done one day, but also that there's going to be new life. There's going to be a new life that comes forth from these things. And so the second thing that we learn that Paul does is he gives an illustration of first fruits. And, and first fruits was a harvest. It's a, a celebration of Israel. And what they would do is that it was, a, it was at the very beginning of the harvest. And so they would go out and they would gather a large portion of the first of the harvest and they would have a party. 
And it was, what it was is the size of that would show and would demonstrate that there was going to be a harvest. There was going to be another time. And so the, the festival of first fruits was the first installment of what was to come. I've said it like this. You can't just eat one pistachio nut. Like it doesn't happen like that. You eat one, you're going to eat the whole darn bag, you know? And that's kind of what it is, is that you have one, like the idea is like, is that God gives us the spirit and like we know it's like that. It's like this, it's this first fruit. It's this one. We know that he's here and so we know that everything else is coming too. And so because we've experienced this new life, because you, when you accept Christ, when you live in him, you get to experience this new life, this freshness, this love, this joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee that one day those things won't be, won't be thwarted. There won't be times where we don't feel it. There won't be times where we go through dryness. Instead, we will walk in it permanently and abundantly. And so we hope for those things. We, we approach life with that mindset. I want to end our time together just kind of talking about um, how this has been really practical to me, and I want to look at Jesus. The idea of waiting for something that is a greater good um, has been really practical to me. I mean, for those of you that don't know me, I'm, I'm 27, I am a virgin, and I'm engaged now, and it's been a long time, right? And and Emily and I are, are engaged, and so just being in, in a moment of transparency, it's a, it's a struggle. Like, we fight for purity. Like, we fight because the Bible talks about that you're not to have sex until marriage, that you are to, that sex is made for covenant, it's made for two people that are engaging in covenant, and it's not to be used outside of that. And so us together, we fight for that, right? I mean, we fight each day like to, to strive for purity. And one of the lessons the Lord has taught me in this is that it's worth the wait, right? Is that so often we, we think that, but it is, it is worth it because the good that is to come is far greater than anything that you would experience before, and what the Lord was, has, has been teaching me through that time, through that fight and through that struggle of just of seeking to, you know, when you love somebody, you want full union, right? And so when you abstain from that, the Lord taught me that, that this is the whole Christian life, that you're saying no to something now in order that you might say yes to something far greater in the future. Don't you see, it's not just, and so like Christ has just been ministering to my heart in that and just saying, Trevor, don't you realize that this isn't just one aspect of your life, but instead this is your whole life is that there's something that is far greater that is awaiting you in the future and that you are saying no to things now because the best is yet to come because of what is awaiting us. And so this is, this is all of us. All of us right now are saying no to things, right? Christ is calling us to say no to things because, because of what is to come, because of the beauty and the goodness of what is awaiting us, is that we fight, is that we say no because of the glory that is coming to us. And don't you see that this is what Jesus did, right? Jesus came and he humbled himself. He came from being creator to becoming a man. And, and Satan tempted Christ, right? In Matthew 4, you see Satan coming to Christ and he says, listen, why don't you just have all the glory that is due to you? Don't you see? You're due all this glorious, all this glorious things. You're due the earth, you're due praise, you're due worship. Why don't you just skip the suffering? Why don't you just take it now? What does Jesus say, right? Jesus rebukes him with God's word. And he says, no, it's important. I need to go through this. He doesn't skip out on the suffering and take the easy route. But instead, he understands the glory that is coming to him. And he endures the suffering. And we see it in, uh, in, at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus prays out. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's about to die. 
And he prays this. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so you see that Jesus in his last hour understands that God is his heavenly father. He understands and he trusts God that, that he is intimate in that moment and he has full confidence in, heaven, in his heavenly father's plan. But yet he holds out, right? He endures the suffering, realizing the glory that is awaiting. Right? Jesus endured the cross because he saw, he saw the resurrection of all things. He saw his church praising his name. He saw the time where this world is free and when we are free, and so he endured. And it's encouragement for us to endure, to persevere, because of what is awaiting us, because of the glory and the resurrection that is coming. I want to finish by reading First John. John, in the middle of his epistle, almost stops and cries out, it's, it's actually a very drastic thing in Greek. Like he's almost exclaiming like, what a mysterious and wonderful thing. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are sons because of the spirit God has given to us, and we have a glorious future that awaits us. Let us live our life in light of these things, our adoption and his promises. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We give you all glory and all honor and all praise. We ask that your Holy Spirit would dwell in us richly, that you would remind us and encourage our hearts, God, that we are your sons, God, that, that you have far greater plan for us than we can hope or imagine. Help us to live in light of these truths, God. We now, we lift our voices, we lift our hearts, and we praise and we worship you, King Jesus. Thank you, Abba. Thank you, Father. We love you. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.